Welcome to the Knife Junkie Podcast, your weekly dose of knife news and information about knives and knife collecting. Here's your host, Bob the Knife Junkie DeMarco. Welcome to the Knife Junkie Podcast. I'm Bob DeMarco. On this edition of the show, I have the great honor of speaking with one of my knife world heroes, Lynn Thompson. Lynn founded Cold Steel in 1980 with the goal of creating the world's strongest, sharpest knives. His debut model was the Master Tonto, the first American Tonto with a faceted tip to hit the market, and it hit like a ton of bricks. Over the next 40 years, Lynn would leverage his innovative spirit, martial arts training, and love for historical weaponry to grow Cold Steel into a one-stop edged weapons super shop. That's what I'm calling it. Need a tough-as-nails folder for everyday carry? Cold Steel. Need a combat or rescue knife that won't quit? Cold Steel. Need a throwing spear or historically accurate battle-ready two-handed greatsword? Who else but Cold Steel? You know I could go on forever about Cold Steel and its knives, but I'll spare you and let Lynn tell us all about that. But first, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and share the show. Lots of Cold uh, Cold Steel fans out there you can share this show with. And as always, if you want to help support the show, you can go to Patreon. Quickest way to do that is to scan the QR code on your screen or go to thenifejunkie.com slash Patreon. Again, that's thenifejunkie.com slash Patreon. Do you use terms like handle the blade ratio, walk and talk, hair pop and sharp, or tank like? Then you are a dork and a knife junkie. Lynn, welcome to the Knife Junkie podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you, sir. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. Well, um, you know, it was a it was a great moment meeting you outside Blade Show this year, Blade Show 2023 in Atlanta. I was leaving, figuring out if I was going to walk back to my apartment, take an Uber. I was just kind of reeling in that afterglow. And I saw you talking with Luke LaFontaine and I came over. It was great meeting you. And uh, man, I was I was impressed with how open and warm you were. Well, thank you. I I always um, try to remember that. I love all my customers. I do love all my customers, and I, I try to be friendly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would imagine, especially your swamp, you know, um, to, to knife collectors and knife junkies such as myself, people such as yourself are rock stars. I mean, um, so when we, we get a chance to meet the people who dream up these things that we love and we love to collect, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure. I, I'm going to start this interview, which, which could go vast in all directions because of your experience and because of my experience with your knives, uh, but I want to start with a philosophical question and just ask you, what is it about knives? What is it about knives that turns people into um, uh, collectors, even when they don't have a use for a sword or a machete or a survival knife? Well, if you look back into our history, you know, our knife is probably one of the oldest weapons or tools we have. So it's embedded in our culture uh, from thousands of years ago and it's in every book it's in every movie um if you go to like barnes and noble you'll in the science fiction and fantasy section you'll see a thousand several thousand books with a knife or a sword on the cover it's just everywhere in our society and a lot of people never get to handle a real sword or a knife but they always dream about it and then they're always looking for a chance to do that. And then when they do, they're pretty fascinated by it. I think it's the fact that it's both an awesome tool and an awesome weapon. It has the portent to be used for good or for evil. You know, when something's really sharp like that and pointed 
and slightly heavy, and you know it can make big cuts. There's something fascinating about that. I think there's something very appealing about the um, the ability to be um, self-reliant, and there's nothing, uh, you know, there's there's no more foundational tool to self-reliance than a knife. And, uh, you know, you can see that play out across the knives that uh, you designed. Um, and then, and then also looking at them historically, those were survival knives for that, that day. Let's, let's talk about cold steel and, and how you got this started. Uh, tell me a little bit about where you came from and, and, and how and why you translated this love for knives into such a thriving company. Well, I was born in Fortaleza, Brazil, and then we moved into the vast interior of northeastern Brazil. And we lived about 48 hours by Jeep from the nearest big town and very remote areas. Um, I grew up in a adobe uh, hut with a palm um, leaf and uh, sometimes even um, uh, clay uh, tiles, ceiling, just poles, though, and no running water, no electricity. So that's why I don't go camping. Uh, my idea of camping today is a five-star hotel with 24-hour room service. I've camped plenty, and I'm willing to go and do without anything. Like when I'm hunting, and I was hunting in Tanzania one time, and we were on the track of buffalo. And, I mean, I slept for three days on the ground with just my pack, and that was it. So, yeah, I'm willing to do without anything to get what I want. But um, having lived in rurally remote areas without any creature comforts, not even uh, potable water, you had to, we had to boil all of our water. And, uh, yeah, that's not my idea of a good time anymore. So, um, let's see what else. So I came to, uh, back to, um, the United States and I learned to speak English in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, those white kids were pretty hard on me. There was no one that spoke another language in our school system. And so, um, my parents quit speaking Portuguese. So I would assimilate quicker. And in hindsight, that was a mistake because I've lost most of my Portuguese, but uh, it did allow us to uh, fit in quicker in school. And, um, that's, where I saw snow for the first time and I had to get acclimated to a, a, a totally different climate and a totally different diet. And, um, we learned a lot in Michigan. And then we moved to California and I moved to, uh, Wilmington, which is next to, um, Long Beach and close to Torrance. And then I moved from there to Chico, California and then from Chico back to the Bay area and, um, uh, Richmond area and then down to the Valley and Los Angeles area. And that's, and that's where you founded the company, right? I remember, well, uh, my oldest cold steel here says, um, made in Japan, um, by cold steel in Ventura, California. Yes. We started the company in Ventura, California in the, my real estate office. And I had a, a 10 by 12 foot room that I put the orders in three different boxes and filled them once a week. So, yeah, it started out very small. Most people told me I would never be successful. I remember I was a member of the Ventura Health Club, and I was showing my um, little push dagger. Uh, we called it the Urban Pal even back then, and it had a leather sheath and a key ring. And one of the gals there said that I'll never be successful. That I'll never catch on. You're not going to make it. Who do you think you are? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of depressing a little bit, but um, one thing I am is tenacious. So I just persevered. Seems like there are a lot of origin stories uh, that have that as an element. You'll never go nowhere, kid. It's like, what do you know about knives? Um, 
So at this time, uh, you said Ventura Health Club, which um, makes me think about martial arts. Were you at this point uh, taking up martial arts? And um, and then I want to get back to how you were actually producing these knives, even at this early stage. Well, I started boxing in sixth grade. I got Nat Fletcher's book, How to Box. It's a little green book. And I studied it constantly. And I used to wear out my shoes shadow boxing. And my mom would get so mad because she just bought me this pair of shoes and now they were, they were trashed again. So I went from that to judo and from that to, uh, water ryu karate. And from water ryu karate, I went into, um, JKT and the Filipino martial arts where I found out I didn't know anything. I had to start all over again. There's been a couple of those big start over again things in my martial career. 1983, I went to the, Colleague camp that Dan and Asanta put on at UC Irvine. And I thought I was a tough guy. I thought I was talented. I found out I knew nothing. There were so many people there that were more talented than me. I mean, I took Bill Wallace. I don't know if you know who he is. Superfoot. Superfoot, yeah. I took his stretching class. So I go in there and everyone starts stretching. And I got up and I left. And he says, where are you going? I said, this is way out of my level. You know, you guys are way too advanced in stretching for me. I knew that if I kept in there, I'd just hurt myself. But I learned an awful lot there. And I learned what I didn't know. So. Then I really started to pursue um, the Filipino martial arts pretty hard. Dan Asanto came to my business in the 82-83 area with Cass Magda, who is his training partner at the time. And he put on a college demonstration for me that was just unbelievable. He just blew me away. And at that time, he could actually slip knife thrusts. And I thought, who can do that? And it wasn't until about 1988 that I found out that I could slip them too. It's just time and grade. Uh, you have to just persevere. So I don't have as much talent as some other people do, but I have the tenacity and I never quit trying. And that's how I've be- got surpassed lots of people in my martial abilities is because I just never quit. I just keep training. So I encourage everybody out there that, that wants uh, to be a martial artist is the tenacity will overcome talent, skill, uh, physical abilities. If you just keep going, you'll be surprised and how many people you'll surpass. I also think it's a practice that uh, really goes pretty far in keeping you young because you're always moving. You're uh, sure on your feet. That's that's one thing I've seen uh, with, you know, family members as they age. Uh, maybe leg coordination starts to flag a little bit. Leg strength starts to flag a little bit. But when you're practicing martial arts, especially something like Kali that's so footwork dependent, you're moving around, you're m- you're sure on your feet uh, in a way. And I, I think uh, martial arts can be a sort of fountain of youth too. I a hundred percent agree with you. Uh, my doctors say biologically, I'm about 13 younger years, younger than my age. Nice. So, you know, if you get a good night's rest, which I really promote, you know, you need eight to nine hours sleep, especially if you're training a lot mm-hmm. and um, the constant physical exertion, you know, the body renews itself. Don't use it. You lose it. That's for sure. That's that sleep part. That's always the sticking point for me. Getting enough sleep is is so hard these days. All right. So you were you're you're at this uh, at the Ventura Health Club and you're showing off the Urban Pal push dagger. How at this point were you? What was the Tanto your first knife? And and at this point, how are you making them? The Tanto came out in 1981. In okay. 1980, I had the Urban Pal and the Urban Skinner, two push knives. Um, the owner of Patagonia actually helped me. I forget how to say his last name. It starts with a C. He was super nice to me. And I went to his headquarters here in Ventura and he helped me 
work on the bigger push dagger with the rubber handle. He introduced me to some injection molding guys where I found out about a craton. Because craton, that the whole knife industry uses today, the first user that I know of was the Tacky Mac golf grip. And I was introduced to that golf grip and I felt it. It felt kind of sticky and tacky to the touch. I said, ah, this is, this is going to be the bomb, the bomb for a knife grip. And today, um, craton or TPR, whatever you want to call it, is all over the industry. And it all came from that Tacky Mac golf grip. No one was using it before me. So how did it come to your mind? I'm going to start this company. And, and how did you in that day, right now it's relatively easy for someone like myself. If I come up with the design and the money to prototype it, I can send it to one, one of many great companies and manufacturers in China who can make it for me, mock it up for, I don't imagine back in 1981 or 79 or whatever that it was that easy. Um, how did it work back then? Well, I had some prototypes made. Um, there was a knife maker named Alex Collins. He made a couple push dagger, um, prototypes for me that were absolute shit. I mean, I, they were the worst quality. I couldn't believe a custom knife maker did that. But anyways, um, I made some different prototypes. Then, I tried to get them made in the United States. Uh, one of my friends, Ray Swift, had a huge machine shop on his ranch. And we tried to make stuff there for about a year. And that was really slow going and very difficult. And then I found Lang Precision and they started making uh, really good tantals for me. We didn't have an injection mold. Then we had an epoxy mold. So the first handles were out of craton, but out of an epoxy, not a steel mold. Because steel molds were like, I don't know, seven, eight thousand dollars back then. That was a tremendous amount of money. I mean, a fine blanking die cost seven thousand dollars back then. And so that was a real reach for me. So I started making stuff in America and we just struggled horribly. In nineteen eighty four, when I finally went to Japan, I was about eight hundred thousand dollars in debt. Trying to make stuff in America. So I finally got production in Japan. And by then, though, the Tanto hit had been knocked off by the Tennessee Knife Mafia. And Who's that? Well, I, I don't want to name names, but you can think of all the people that came out of the Southeast and that area um, that copied my stuff. Well, for instance, Taylor, Taylor Cutler. Uh-huh. I mean, they set up a whole factory in Japan, Taylor Sato, with another company, just to copy Cold Steel Cantos. So in 1984, uh, when I finally got production, there was uh, a vast amount of knives. So my Cantos, I think, cost $130, and they were selling for like 30 bucks with a, a cast aluminum handle and a little stub tang that they blew me into the aluminum handle. Mm. So it was a real struggle. So I, I really lost the, the first Tanto hit to the, to the knife mafia. They took the, they took all of the cream. So this is this is what we're talking about here. Um, th- this in particular, this faceted tip. This was something that you pretty much innovated. Uh, if if I've if I've got that correct, you most definitely uh, brought it to prominence um, here in the United States and in the world. Tell tell me about the the design of this and how, what the inspiration was. If I'm intellectually accurate and, mm-hmm. and uh, responsible. I would say Bob Lum probably beat me out with a, a similar tip like that. Mm-hmm. But um, 
he had a lot of story in his knife. I was working on it at the same time, and um, his knife had a lot of curve, didn't have a guard, didn't have a pommel. Um, there was a lot of things that I thought were lacking when I came out with my Tanto. And yes, I, I steadfastly promoted that. In 1988, I'd spent $3 million promoting that knife. I mean, I went all over the country saying, why has it got such a funny tip like that? What's that for? What, what, why does this knife cost $130? I mean, I broke that over $100 knife barrier and everyone followed me. Once I established that you could get $130 for a knife, everyone just flooded in after me. But I was the, the point of the spear, if you will, or the icebreaker. I've always been the icebreaker. The icebreaker. Plowing through. So, uh, with, with me, I had just started Aikido. I was in high school. I just leave, you know, just about to graduate high school. And at the same time, I was getting into martial arts. And at first it was Aikido and the, the Japanese aesthetic. And then my buddy, uh, who was into knives told me about this knife and, and he, he showed me pictures and I was like, wow, that looks like a samurai sword. The CIA uses it. They pound it through car doors. It's the real deal. And, and the story that my buddy, told me about this. I guess he heard some of your marketing uh, through um, one of the catalogs at the time. Now I don't remember which one. Um, maybe U.S. Cavalry or something like that. He uh, he got me hyped about it and it. I saved up. And yes, it was $130. I remember that at the Remington Knife Store at Randall Park Mall outside of Cleveland. Um, we were expensive. Can't do it now, but... No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just a... Uh, so how did you know that you had something? What was the response? I mean, obviously, you took off. So how did that happen? Well, I persevered and used tenacity. I kept going to all the gun shows. Soldier Fortune helped me a lot. Hmm. At that, uh, I advertised in that magazine. I went to the conventions. It was a good opportunity for me to demonstrate the Tanto. Um, one year I was on, a couple of years I was on national television because my mom was watching it, and I got some flack from her about it. I'll tell you about that later, but I was breaking pumpkins with the skull crusher pommel and live demonstrations showing how, how hard it could hit and what you could do with it, the impact forces and showing how good the grip is and how that it, how it fits your hand. And it was designed to, to, to accommodate your hand. It was narrow, a little narrower at the butt end to, to accommodate the shorter fingers, a little bit bigger in the middle and uh, fully checkered all the way around and flattened oval shape. How you could deliver tremendous downward force with it. There was a martial artist that came by watching me doing this, and he wanted to uh, one up me. So he said, "I'll break one of those with my with my my bare fist, you know, just a hammer fist." So I picked out a nice green pumpkin and set it there, and he got it in his stance, and he loaded up, and he came down, pow, with a mighty, mighty, mighty hammer fist. He broke his hand right uh. here on his hand. I knew, see, the thing that he had missed out was that skull crushing pommel was breaking through all that hard rind. That was the icebreaker. I let my fist go through. So that's, that's the advantage of that skull crushing pommel. You can deliver tremendous blows with it. That's why it's tapered and semi pointed. I don't like too much of a point on a pommel because I don't want it digging into me anywhere. Yes. I don't want it to like break the skin or anything like that. So some of really sharp pointed pommels I stay away from. I wanted that tapered shape so that all the force is concentrated in a small area and you can deliver uh, tremendous blows against soft tissue or even bone. Well, I think there's a great power in that kind of demonstration. Um, I mean, at this point in 2023, it's a 
it's a form of um, sedation and entertainment for knife people who are cruising YouTube to watch people doing different kind of cut tests and that kind of thing. Uh, but we didn't really see much of that before the proof videos. And I want to talk about those for a second and and how they impacted your business. Um, but before I do, I just have to uh, give an anecdote. My brother, uh, he's four years older than I am, and and he's he's also a Cold Steel fan. And I texted yeah. him, I'm going to be talking to Lynn Thompson. You want to say anything? And he just sent back in all caps, thank you. And then I, and I was like, anything more specific? And he said, yes, thank you for coming out with folding Chris knives. And I, I said, that is a great specific. Yeah. So from my brother, thank you for coming out with Cold Steel Chris knives. The late Joker Dover, the knife maker. That helped me so much in my career, and I want to give him a big shout out and thank you. Uh, he made the first pair of Chris's for me in 1988. I still have one of them. So uh, I've been into Chris's for a long time. You know, I tried with the Naga Chris Thor, but it didn't catch on. And um, so I came out with the Chris Tylight, and I think that's been pretty successful. Yeah, and the um, and the Voyager too. I mean, those blades are amazing and. I can't imagine they're easy to mass produce and, and, uh, uh, or, cause I know they're, they're not easy to produce one at a time in there. Um, so I think Cold Steel does an amazing job with those Chris's. It's very impressive. Uh, but what, what I was really getting to was I'm remembering one Christmas, we were all home and my brother and I threw in the DVD, the proof DVD, and we're laying there on the ground watching it. Oh, that's so cool. I want a Warhammer. Oh, that's so cool. This and that. And my dad walks in and he says, what is this crap? That was his like. That was how he entered the room when we were watching TV. Well, what is this crap? And then, and then five minutes later, he's sitting there watching too. You know the. Um, so those proof videos not only were um, entertaining for kids like me who really wanted those swords, couldn't afford them, and that kind of thing, um, but they must have done great for selling your knives because you get to see in real time the kind of real use and abuse. Uh, these knives can take. It's one thing to say I make the sharpest, most durable knives. It's another thing to prove it. Well, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, but a demonstration is worth a thousand pictures. So how could I get that out, our message out? And that was a real roadblock for us from 1980 till about 1996 when I first came out with the first video. Uh, in 1988, I was the first one at the SHOT Show ever use a television to demonstrate products. We had a big uh, product demonstration of the Trailmaster knife with uh, Master Smith Dan Rabney. And we played that on a TV and we had just huge crowds around our booth the entire time. And that was the year the Trailmaster really took off and I sold so many of them, I paid off all of my debt in one year. Just wow. off that one knife. And from that I kept looking for ways to actually demonstrate the product. And we tried hard in our catalogs to make them as interesting and fill them with photographs, the good photography and stuff. But it wasn't until the DHS videos came out that we could really start to get our message out. And then when DVDs came out, that really made it possible because the VHSs were so expensive to buy that I couldn't afford to give them away in mass. I think they cost five or six dollars even more per piece, even when I bought them at thousands at a time. So I gave away thousands, but I couldn't give away hundreds of thousands. And then in night, and I think it was somewhere around 19, somewhere close to 2000, somewhere in there, we came out with another proof DVD. And it was that first one in DVD. 
And that really gave us a big jump. Great thing about that when you went to DVD, obviously, were the chapters, you know, and um, well, I guess that was the good thing about DVD, but it was exciting now to see uh, in the menu all the different knives Cold Steel was coming out with that year. Um, let me ask you this. With all of that testing, you know, you you uh, you taped it, you filmed it, you made these videos, but obviously there's a lot of other testing that happens in the R&D um, phase before you're ready to show it to the world. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you, what, how did you come up with tests and, and, uh, you know, for the different purposes? Maybe some, some knives are more tactical, some knives are more survival oriented or, so how did you come up with these tests and what was that like? Well, Master Smith, Dan Maragny had a big influence on me. I met him in 1983 and he actually came to work for us later. Um, and the, the American Bladesmith Society at that time was doing a lot of testing on knives. And I was really interested and fascinated by that too. And I, it was always my desire to emulate the quality and the performance of those knives that they were doing. So I was the first, I think, production manufacturer that ever tried to strive to, to match the performance of uh, hand forged custom knives. Mm. And we took that desire to make the world's strongest, sharpest knives into every aspect of our business. So even when I make a kitchen knife, I'm trying to make the strongest, most durable, um, best value kitchen knife that I can. And we do a lot of testing even on those. For instance, I found that um, if you want a hard-use kitchen knife, there's a, a limit to how thin you can grind the edge. And we find that we found the optimum thickness for really hard use. And so we did a lot of testing like that. I know that um, in the very early part of our career with Dan Mraggy, he was working on a tanto, this is where we learned to take the edge of the point off. And that thing came flying out of the vise and cut his thumb off. Mm. Mm. And Dan was able to take it to the hospital, his severed thumb, and they reattached it perfectly. Oh, and nice. he had full use of it again, which was, the doctor said that if that knife hadn't been that sharp, those tendons and nerves wouldn't have been cut so cleanly, and they couldn't have reattached them as, as well. But that's where we learned the hard way. Oh my God. <laughs> You take the point off and you take the edge off, especially the edge and the point come all the way off. So they're, they're blunt, blunt, blunt. And that will save you a little bit. Um, also, we were, start wearing a lot more protective equipment, but, um, yeah, there was a tremendous amount of testing on everything. How much of that testing, um, once, once you had locked into a product design, um, or, or, or I, I guess I should say an idea for a knife. This is going to be a Tonto. It's combat oriented, this and that. Um, how much did the testing actually change the designs? Is there a feedback that goes back and forth? Well, my, my wife always said, why can't we make cool, sexy, dramatic knives like everybody else? I said, because they don't cut and they don't stab very well and they just look cool, but you can't do anything with them. So we tried to make them very practical from the very beginning and I would take almost all the stuff overseas to test. For instance, the um, Ultimate Hunter, folding Ultimate Hunter right now. I took that to Australia for three weeks, and I killed a big bull buffalo. We skinned it entirely, all with the same edge. We never sharpened it. We skinned mm -hmm. it. We cut its head off. We caped it, and we quartered it, all with that Ultimate Hunter. Now, was it dull when I was done? Yes, it was dull. I won't say as dull as a butter knife, but it was dull. But I just wanted to show 
what the knife can really do in extremis. So you can use that knife to do almost any outdoor activity you could think of, especially anything that has to do with hunting. And we proved that, you know, when you're fiddling through the vertebrae, trying to get the head off, I want to see if the point would snap off. A lot of knives, you know, you'll snap the point off doing that. Um, there's, it's, it's just a hard use test. So we did a lot of that. Um, the trail boss axe, um, the special forces shovel. I took all those things to Australia and I used them, uh, hard. I'll tell a story on myself that was pretty embarrassing at the time. I was trying to cut this tree down with a new trail boss, uh, axe, the new first shipment or first delivery. And, um, I was swinging away and chopping and chopping and chopping and chopping. And finally I got it down and I was like looking at the axe and I was all disgusted. And they said, that's the hardest wood we have in Australia. Oh. <laughs> starts with a D. Starts with a Digi or something like that. I can't remember. But it's a super, super hard wood. And then I felt a little bit better about myself because I, I, I am a fair hand with an axe. And I thought, why am I laboring to cut this thing down? You know, this thing is sharp. I also used it to um, dispatch a few animals with there. I remember there was an old ram that was tottering along. And one of the ranchers there said, go and put that thing out of its memory. And I, Went and quickly dispatched them with the trail boss. And so I tested that thing in lots of ways that other people wouldn't test it. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, I think that almost everything should be a weapon. Everything to me is a weapon first. And if you make it good enough to save your life or save your customer's life, there is no higher standard than that. So that was the highest standard we always went to is, you know, if this was the, my only weapon, would it fail me? That is, uh, that's part of, um, how I view it too. Everything is a weapon, especially when it comes to knives. And your, uh, never unarmed mantra ha has always rung in my head. Um, you know, even when I'm at home with my family, especially when I'm at home with my family, I make sure that, uh, I'm ready to go. Um, so I, I, I do appreciate that philosophy. There are not too many knife companies that are willing to, who have that philosophy or are willing, uh, to admit it. Um, but, but your, your whole story about, about, uh, uh, beheading, quartering, caping that buffalo with the one knife, um, made me think of steels and heat treat and how, um, people like myself who are so deep into the, um, realm of collecting knives and, um, how we get wrapped up in, in steel, um, you know, steel names and numbers and, 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 I will readily admit there are plenty of people who use their knives way more than I do and are more qualified to talk about heat treat and steels uh, than I, uh, especially considering I, like like you, consider it a weapon first. You might not need that sort of uh, durability. Um, but cold steel has always been known for taking steels like AUS-8A, which was kind of people look down their nose at, but the way cold steel handled it, heat treated it, it was always performing amazingly. Well, let's talk about 8A. It's interesting you say that. Okay. 8A was the premium steel that you could get in Japan in the 80s. And um, I'd heard about 10A, but they wouldn't work with it because they said it was too hard, too hard to grind, too hard to polish. It wasn't until later as they were actually forced into using these better steels. The Japanese resisted that because they wanted something that was more manufacturing friendly. Mm. But it was a really good steel um if it's properly heat treated it holds a pretty decent edge it's very very tough very resistant to breaking and um 
there was a, there's a famous knife maker, I won't say their name, that wrecked the reputation of 8A. They told that their products for about seven-year period were 8A steel when they were only 420J. Hmm. The 420J, the maximum hardness is around 54, 55. And that's where this thing about 8A will hold an edge. It didn't come from people using cold steels, 8A. It came from others. I won't say their names because, um, yeah, I have other better other things to do than being lawsuits. Although I've just won my 17th lawsuit in a row. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, wow. So um, uh, that's interesting because, uh, yeah, steels, uh, it's it's a tricky thing because you, you want uh, to, as a collector, we'll say, you or as a user, you want the best steel you can get for your money. But really, if you're like me, you're relying on what other people are telling you is the best steel and the best heat treat because I'm not taking all of these knives and banging on them outside and surviving with them. Um, that's part of why I collect them because I know they're capable of it. You know, that's part of my little internal thing. Um, but, but we want to know that we're getting the most for our money. There was a time, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago when you switched to XHP and then a little bit to S35VN and then all S35VN. Tell me about what went into that decision to upgrade the steels. Well, we were getting a lot of comments about, um, not using uh, the higher end powdered steels and, I tested them and found that they had real advantages. Um, we decided to make the jump from uh, mostly 8A to XHP and then S35VN. I, I like XHP really well, but I couldn't get it. It was a nine-month, sometimes 12-month delivery cycle, and that was really, really hard to work with. So we switched to S35VN, which had like a four- to five-month delivery cycle, and it's a lot more manufacturing-friendly. Yeah, I remember that, that thing. I think it was around 2013 or so that we made that switch. And we sold off all of the 8A inventory. And we still use 8A. It's still awesome. But we use it on knives that we think are more appropriate for it. If the knife has a, a real high edge retention expectation, we want to use you know a better powdered steel. And when 3V came around and I got to see what 3V could do, uh, I was sold on that too. I remember uh, feeling it was a very bittersweet move when you move because I was like, now I have to get everything in the new steel. I'm not getting rid of the old stuff, but now I got to get it all back. But in the new steel, and I didn't too much. Um, um, there are so many things I want to ask you, but here's something that's that is so central to why I love uh, cold steel and 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 you at, at the helm uh, was this kind of thing. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the audacious size, which is awesome. It's the fact that you are responsible for making um, my favorite historical folder uh, in a modernized version. You, you take the Navaja, you turn it into a, a three-knife series, a uh, six-knife series, uh, because you've got the, the G10 versions. Uh, you, you make reproductions of historical swords. Um, everything that you do, like, uh, like the Bowies, the Laredo, and the, and the Natchez, um, based in historical designs, that is what keeps always brought me back to Cold Steel, were these amazing historical designs. Tell me about your love of historical blades. Do you have a collection of them? And how you would decide for the next product year, I'm going to make a Navaja or I'm going to make a Chris or how that worked? Well, I, bought my, I built my first Navaja in 1984. Mm -hmm. It was the first 
knife that I made in Japan, first folding knife. And I tested and it failed. <laughs> the lock wasn't strong enough for my tests. So I never put it in production. If you're going to make a knife that big, you have to have a lock that matches the leverage that you can uh, get with that blade. And you have to have a lock that can stand up to um, the hard use of something that's, you know, 14, 16 inches long when it's open. And people think that that seven half inch spot is big, but actually a lot of Navajas are much bigger than that. And traditionally they were quite often worn in the sash uh, uh, or the um, cummerbund. And um, they, they would wear ones when they're open, they were two feet long sometimes. And I'm glad that you enjoy the Navaja because I've studied the Navaja for a long time. I have quite a few books on it. And I finally wanted, I always looking for a gap in the market. No one made a good Navaja except some of the guys in Spain. Mm-hmm. And I give them credit. They were making them um, modern ones for back in the 80s. I think I bought my first one at the Soldier Fortune Convention is 82, 83, somewhere in there. I remember it had a white handle. And a nickel silver bolster. And when I tested it, I broke it too. Hmm. I'm always was disappointed that I, I break this stuff. But yeah, I've been interested in that for a long time. Um, there's been a couple of books out. I forget what the guy's name is. Uh, he's, like, he's a little shorter guy. And um, he came out with a book on fighting with Navajas. Sabian Steel. Yes. Yeah, I remember that book. So I, bought, I buy every book that I can find on knife fighting. See, when I started Cold Steel and I started making fighting knives, I said, I'm going to become an expert in fighting with knives. I'm not going to be a phony like all my competitors and make all these tactical knives. I didn't know how to use them. I always say the only thing that my competitors can use a knife for is to butter their bread with. (laughs) Um, They don't have any – I just am amazed at all these people going around all the shows. um, They're they're pumping and uh, uh, peacocking like they're all tactical knife fighting experts and they have all this vast experience and they wear all the special operator clothes, you know, got their pants, blouse into their boots sometimes. And uh, I just laugh because none of them have paid the price for me to learn how to fight with a knife. And there is, as you know, a huge price to pay. Well, yeah. How many have you broken? How many bruises all over your body? How many times have you had your lips smashed? How many times have you had your nose busted? You know, I've had it all. At least you get to tell people uh, this. This you should see the other guy. This happened during knife fighting class, and people are like, "Okay." I, I was fighting yesterday, and I usually just wear protective glasses because if I don't mind saying so, I have a super defense. And I was—I don't know where I was, but I moved into the blade and hit me right in the mouth, smashed this lip mm. into that tooth. I was moving kind of away from it, so I didn't get the full force, but it just reminded me again, hey, there's a price you pay to learn all this stuff and to be good at it. So, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Just aluminum knives. Um, there's, I don't need a shock knife to know if I've been hit. If you get hit with aluminum, there's no doubt whether you got stabbed or cut or whatever. Yeah. You know, the proof of, you'll see in the shower the next day in the bruise. Yeah, that, and that's your badge of honor that you get to... You know, yeah. that, that shows that you put a little bit of that time in. They don't understand that, that there's there's a huge price to be paid. You know, I always say, I'm not arrogant. I know. I talk like like I do with authority because I paid the price to really learn what, what works and what doesn't work. There's a price to be paid. I think that before um, – now, I'm going out on a limb here because 
the cold steel folders that I had, the Voyagers that I had before you brought Andrew Demko on and the triad lock were amazingly strong. Like my El Hombre and my uh, Vaquero Grande and all the, and all the, the pre triad lock backlocks were very, very strong. And then uh, you bring in Andrew Demko, who also has a love of historical knives and, and a martial arts background. He's a and, genius. And, and yeah, and, and he brings like an incredible lock to the company and some just absolutely beautiful designs. Um, I commissioned that lock. I was going to, I was going to ask you about the lock. I didn't design it, but I had him work on it. I said, we need a lock that beats what we have now because we've gone as well as far as we could with the rocker lock. Although Andrew and his geniuses has improved the rocker lock quite a bit. For instance, Cold Seal's double safe hunter <clears throat> under my watch, that lock would pass all of our tests without even engaging the safety. So he's improved the rocker lock quite a bit. But at that time, um, I remember our five inch blade would hold about 90 to 110 pounds. And, uh, most folders wouldn't even hold 30 to 40 pounds. So it was probably twice as strong as any other lock on the market. But, uh, then Bitchmate came out with their, um, lock, uh, access lock. And that was pretty badass. And I, I was, um, driven to try to surpass them. And you did. Well, these fingers, these are precious. They're precious to me. I'm sure they're precious to you. This finger here, this trigger finger, I spent probably a quarter million dollars educating this finger just in ammunition. And I know there's pianists and guitarists and musicians and carpenters and all kinds of people that use their hands every day. And you lose your finger or have it disabled because your folding knife folds when you're doing something, that's no good. No bueno. So I've always been conscious about cutting your fingers off with a knife because especially when you're fighting with a folder, um, I talk about this all the time. The side is used. The back of the blade is used. The edge is used. So I'll take pressure here. Sometimes people actually hit it, but I'll actually move things aside with it because sometimes I can't turn the edge from this side fast enough to engage on that side. So I'll just flip my wrist that way as I step. Sometimes I'll, I'll get caught and I'll have to lift with it. Sometimes I'll have to slop with it. So how strong this connection is and how strong that lock is, is vitally, vitally, vitally important, especially when you pose fixed blades. So there's a, it's, there's a really big deal. Now, most people don't give a crap about that because fighting with the knife is the last thing they ever think about doing. And it should be the last thing you should do if you can possibly avoid it. It's, it's enormously dangerous, but when you, when you're down to using your folding knife to defend yourself with, it better be the best that you can get. It better have the highest performance, the, the best strength, the weight ratio, all, all those things. It better be the best. If you value your life. Well, I, I, okay. Just, I feel like the advent of the triad lock to the market itself changed the market a little bit. And, uh, this is something I'm thinking about only now as we're speaking about it, but it makes sense to me. And that is, that before the triad lock, every, uh, it was, uh, the overbuilt thing was happening. People were building overbuilt knives and, uh, and, and that tends towards the tactical. So there was this kind of loose bin of what is a tactical folder. And then, and then the triad lock comes around, uh, comes around and it's kind of, uh, proven indisputably that it is so incredibly strong that if you're actually going to use a folder as a, as a fighting knife, uh, it should probably be one of these triads and and at that point i feel like people started saying okay well we're kind of edc actually we're 
we're, we're not really a tactical. We, we use some of those, uh, aesthetics, but you know, hey, hey, we're not fighting. You know, we're not there. There seemed to be a big distancing for some of the market, um, from the tactical self defense side of things. I agree, but you, you'll see companies that have this EDC line or, uh, I would call the, um, a less aggressive or milder looking line of knives, but then they still try to enter the tactical market. Um, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the thought of having to use a knife for self-defense. So they want to gravitate towards that. I got a lot of pushback in the knife industry from always being the point of the spear. And I'll tell you where it really came out and promise where we're talking about this uh, softer approach. In 1996, at the inaugural meeting of the Knife and Tool Institute, what is it, American Knife and Tool? Institute, yeah. I think. Institute, right. That was happened at the Blade Show. So I was at the front row with my wife. Uh, Les Diocese was there from Benchmade and Sal Blesser, and we're talking about the direction, and uh, I believe it was Les Diocese that said, well, we don't want to be like the NRA. We don't want all these fighting knives. We don't want to present ourselves for self-defense and all this stuff. And everyone bagged on fighting knives. I believe Sal Blesser pitched in, too. And finally, I got up and I said, hey, wait a minute. I said, you go out there on that show floor. And look at all the knives that are double-edged, they're bowies, they're flip points, they're tantos, they're all these fighting knives. If you take those out of the knife industry, it'll collapse. There won't be any because people will pay more for a weapon than they will for a tool. So mm-hmm. I stood up for that and I was really pillared for it. Um, yeah. At one time, Sal Glasser even told me I was the black hat in the knife industry. But then he got busted by the federal government. Right, and had to pay a four hundred thousand dollar fine, which I've never even been arrested. So, who's the black hat? <laughs> wow. Well, a lot of us uh, on our end of things, the knife industry, the knife world, the knife community is a very open and friendly place. But we don't see the business side. We're not in the business side, most of us. Uh, so, I think it's probably just you know like any other business uh, as as far as that goes. But when you stood up for fighting knives, um, and what was it? Was it more about people not? Was it more about the knife industry trying to be accepted in a more broad way? And that's so. okay. See, the thing I was tactical when tactical wasn't cool. Um, and then, like I said, I've been the point of the spear for a long time. I took a lot of the derision and the hate, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that people had about me presenting knives as tactical, but that's what they are. Um, I don't care what your EDC folder is, if you're pressed in the corner and it's going to be a lot better than fingernails. So you will use it if you have to use it. There's no other choice. And I guess I didn't pussyfoot around it. That's what they didn't like. I didn't put a lot of um, sugar and um, frosting on my product, the way I marketed it. And people didn't like that. And and I think, you know, uh, well, we were talking about the proof videos a little bit earlier. Those were out at least 15 years before Forged in Fire, one of the greatest shows ever. Thank you. Thank you. I love that show. But, uh, you know, that show made it um, derogatory to see uh, a, a dead pig being cut. Uh, that's that's how you test a blade. But but when you were doing it, I feel like a lot of that controversy uh, surrounding you for a time, it melted away, uh, from my perspective. But a lot of the controversy surrounding you was, oh, you know, 
cutting pigs and and you know smashing cars this isn't what we use knives for you know like stop it mall ninja and i'm like yeah this guy could mall ninja you like anyway i love that when someone calls me a mall ninja huh. yeah come to my gym and let's see who's the mall ninja but i think some of that controversy was around those proof videos and now uh that is a, a totally accepted form of testing and showing people how you do the testing well it's interesting you brought that up because, uh, again, I was the icebreaker uh, going before all the other ships. Uh, the proof videos have spawned five TV shows, and I've yet to get a check from any of them. <laughs> um, for instance, the cutting the, the pigs and stuff like that. I got a lot of crap from that in Europe. Um, I've got a lot of uh, crap in the United States about it. Uh, for instance, uh, Smoky Mountain Knifeworks, my friend Kevin Pipes there, who is a good friend of mine. I really like him. He's a great guy. Um, he helped me a lot in the 2000s. Um, we sent him 400,000 DVDs to distribute with everyone that ordered a knife of him one fall. But there was a stipulation. I had to take out all the meat and pig cutting from the DVDs. Mm. So I had to edit them because they thought it was going to be too offensive. Put it back then. So all those DVDs went out there, desensitized enough people for um, the uh, Deadliest Warrior and uh, Fortune Fire to use my stuff. For instance, most people don't know that when that Deadliest Warrior came out, I sent them my catalog. I, I made all the offers to help them with weapons. Hmm. They ended up using all my training partners. Uh, uh, all through that series, this, uh, Anthony Delonges, Luke LaFontaine, Jason Heck, all kinds of my regular training partners were in that. Same thing with Deadliest Warrior. Uh, Dave Baker, he used to uh, be in our videos. He used to do prototypes and work with us all the time. Oh, yeah. So where do you think all this stuff came from? Did you see a forged fire? It all started with with me. I know that sounds bragging, but it's it's just ir irrefutably true. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it it's a fact as a fact as a fact. Um, tell me a little bit about your ranch. Um, I, I have I have grown um, jealous, not envious. I'm happy you have it, but I'd love a, a ranch just like that too. Cold Steel Ranch looks like an amazing place um, for you to unwind and get your, um, you know, really practice your craft and, and do the things you love. If people don't know what I'm talking about, there are many, many videos now online of testing uh, various Cold Steel products at uh, at Lynn's gorgeous ranch. You know, just lots of beautiful space and and targets set up and cutting stations and everything. Um, that's like a playground. Tell me about that. Well, I bought the ranch five years ago for my wife. My wife has um, followed my star for our whole married life, and she's been a very good equestrian. Um, she shows in Western disciplines, mm -hmm. and she's a really good rider. And she boarded at this ranch for 23 years, and she really wanted to buy it and own it. So I decided to give her a dream, and I bought it for her. That's pretty nice. About 22 acres, it's totally flat, which in our area, flat ground is precious. I could have bought 6,000 acres for the same price just about, but it's all a hillside. Graze a few cattle, you know, the, the carrying capacity isn't super high here. So um, there's not much I could do with hillsides, but with flat, we, the flat ground was important to us and it has two, two enormous big houses on it and a bunch of rentals and uh, has 
What I like about it is I have a really nice gymnasium that's about 2,400 square feet. And I also have a ninja camp, what I call my ninja camp, where, like you mentioned, we have a lot of targets set up. And I can throw my spears, shoot my bows, shoot air guns, shoot blow guns, and uh, do outside fighting with pole arms and big swords. It, it seems to me like the kind of place where ideas uh, are likely to germinate uh, just because of the nature of what you're doing. I've always had a gym in Cold Steel since, let's see, I think I, think I put my first gymnasium in, in the 1983 or 84. I had a small gym in my building. And as I moved up in size of buildings, my gym expanded to where um, my last building uh, on Nicole Street. Uh, I had a really big uh, two-and-a-half-story gymnasium. It was all set up for DVDs. It had wall-to-wall mats. had grappling mats. It had every kind of training apparatus you could have. It had $80,000 worth of uh, handmade aluminum swords and knives and daggers and stuff to train with. Um, so out of that gymnasium comes lots of my ideas. I, I read constantly. I have the largest... Uh, library in the knife industry, almost about 2,600 volumes of knives and swords wow. and martial arts and stuff like that. And out of the reading and out of the watching and, and, and movies and stuff, I constantly get inspired to, 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 to try something new. So I'll make aluminum prototypes and we'll fight with them and see how they perform and see if we want to make that or not. So um, things I read and things I, I see inspire me all the time. I'm always thinking about it. And I don't think other people think the same way I do. Uh, there is people that I know uh, that I've known in life um, who are focused on something and they think about it all the time. Like, you know, my martial arts teachers, for instance, they're, that's, that's what they do. And that's what, what's in their head all the time. And it shows in their movement. That's you, you, uh, Ron Blicky, my training partner for many years. Um, if he's standing still, he'll be doing jab hook combinations. He'll be moving. Um, he's constantly, even his, his martial arts focus is still, I would say, 10 times higher than mine. Mine's pretty high, but he is like totally, totally in that narrow plane like this. And that's why he has such vast abilities and expertise. It's just like Andrew Demko. Uh, don't ask him how to spill anything. <laughs> But in his area, he's up here. He's like, I'm down here. So we have some of the interest, but I don't have, he's, he's, he has a genius talent. And I recognize that early on. And we've become very, very close friends. So you've done that a lot in your career. Um, recognize talent, bring them in for, um, various designs. Like I'm thinking of the tie light, for instance. I can't remember the gentleman who designed it. No, okay. Yes, and uh, and um, Andrew Demko. Want to get a story on that? Yeah. Okay, so I'm at the Blade Show, and I see this bluish, purplish-looking switchblade-looking knife, and I bought it. It was by Phil Bukaszewski, and I thought that's the closest liner lock that I've seen that looks like a switchblade, and it folds up good and all that stuff. So I contacted Phil, made an arrangement to license it from him. And we put it in production. So I give him, uh, he's passed away now, but I give him full creds for that. He was the, I've changed the highlight around a little bit since then, but he was the real inspiration. That's like, cool. 
lot of the stuff that I that I've had success in cold steel, I owe it to the genius of other custom knife makers that I've worked with. So that's why I buy so many knives. I always have some part of an idea in me, and I'll buy a knife that I think has this part. I'll buy a knife, another knife that has that part. I'll buy another knife that has that part, and then I'll add in the parts that aren't available and try to create something different. Uh, I just want to uh, double back a little bit on a question I asked earlier, um, and that is uh, relevant to what you were just saying. And, and that is from model year to model year, um, what was it like for you balancing what you think was going to sell and what your personal interest is? Like, I really am into this style knife right now, and I want to make a bunch of cold steel models. How did you do that balance? Well, that's interesting you say that. I could have made a lot more money if I'd made more things just for the market. But mostly I made the things that I liked and hoped that the market would like them too. I built things that I thought should be built or were needed or were left out or the things that I was interested in. Um, I did, again, I'll come back to Kevin Pipes. He helped me a lot in the mid-2000s. He said to me, when we're talking about this, around 2008, um, when we had the big crash, and I was making the 60s series then, and they were quite expensive. And people, the demand for that fell off very rapidly when we had that big economic crash. And he said to me, when we're talking about, I said, Lynn, you got to have a cushion for every size ass. <laughs> and, you know, then I realized that I needed to diversificate my lineup a little bit more and make stuff that was more affordable for lots of people. So I started to do that. But always in the back of my mind was, no matter what we make, no matter what price, it's got to be worth more than the money asked. It's got to be a huge value for the money. And so whenever I make anything, I would put the, the knife or the object down. And next to it, I'd put in green dollar bills the money that I'm asking for and ask myself, is this worth that money? If I worked, like I, I put myself through school working in uh, the Teamsters Union in the Bay Area. And what's the local thing? I'll think of a second. That's something local, local 320 or 180 or something like that. But I, I give the teamsters a lot of credit because they helped me get through college. I made enough money working for them that I could uh, actually pay for my education. What was I going to say? There's a start to that. Uh, you were you were getting that. Uh, um... Oh, value. Okay, that's right. The value. So I know what it's like to work with my hands and pick things up all day long. I would pick up my average uh, th things that I would list would be between 45,000, 80,000 pounds a day by hand. So I know what it's like to pick up and do hard physical work. Mm. And so I earned my money the hard way. So I always think about that. If you're working there in a warehouse or a machine shop or out on an oil rig or whatever, whatever you're doing and you're spinning your, your, your muscular strength and sweat and blood sometimes and you're taking risks to earn a living and then you're paying your hard-earned money for my knife. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Am I getting value for that? And so sometimes I've even discontinued stuff that I didn't think was good enough. Well, uh, so did you? Were you ever surprised? Did you have something that you thought was going to uh, be a blockbuster and flopped, or vice versa? Something that was totally unexpected uh, success? Well, I'll tell you, the Thailand was a huge success that I didn't expect because there's a story that goes with that. We had one. Uh, I won't say his name, but he just had retired from Delta Force. He was a captain, came to work for us, and um, he was telling my wife that the 
pilot that I was coming out with is going to flop. Why we're we investing in it? It's going to be a disaster. Um, it's a horrible knife. It'll never sell. And so my wife came to me and says, you know, blank is telling me that this knife you're making is going to be a horrible flop. It's, it's never going to sell. It's this, it's that, it's that. And I said, just wait and see. We'll see who's right. And it was a huge success for us. And at one time, I don't know today, but at one time, it was this best-selling folder that Cool Steel ever had. Wow. Year in, year out. Everyone loves the switchblade, man. And here's the thing. It's been massively copied. Oh, yeah. Massively copied. And, and very closely and, and slightly differently in many, many different shapes and forms. All those gas station knife guys, mm-hmm. all the Tennessee knife mafia, and all those guys, they all copied it. Even Boker. Well sold well. Yeah. Yeah, even even Boker got their little slice of the tie light pie. And I love Boker. I'm not trying to call them out, but um that's that's interesting because I could see, you know, if if I were in your shoes, I could see myself thinking this this knife is gonna be a hit because I'm into it, everyone's gonna be into it, and then it comes out and people are like, eh, not so into barongs, Bob. And it's like, really? <laughs> um uh, that that but that right there, I mentioned the barong. That's another thing you did for a lot of Filipino martial artists, there are a lot of Filipino martial artists out there bringing some of these uh, weapons that we train with in aluminum form to real ready, battle ready form. As a matter of fact, you just came out with the, well, Cold Steel came out with the Chris last year. I know that was your design. Um, I mean, I think people have a lot to be grateful for in that uh, realm. What was your favorite Cold Steel design that you presided over? What was the one that just makes you feel the best about your efforts. Well, of course, I did the original Tantos, and those were all my designs. And the SRK, which is one of the best, you know, all-around survival um, or bush knives that you can buy today, I designed that entirely myself, and I'm pretty proud of that. It's got a great handle. It's really, really hard to beat that handle. I mean, even lately, there is a gal called Survival Lily, Yes. She carried Germany years and then she decided to knock it off. And the Dutch bushcraft guys did a test and said, sorry, Lily, the SR skate is still better than your knife on their test. So I wasn't too chaffed about that having her. But I'm kind of used to people knocking off my stuff because they don't have any of their own ideas. Well, that's true. I'll give you, for instance, the best day in Clint Cadell's life at Bud K is when the new Cold Steel lineup comes out or the new catalog. And you can see what he's going to make next year. Oh, yeah, Bud K. Bud K. I know about Bud K. Talk about somebody copying me closely. Man. But I'm used to it. It's it's nice to have such uh, devoted fans, Lynn. Yeah. Uh, This SRK, uh, this is an old older one. This is uh, uh, Carbon V, Carbon 5, Carbon V. Uh, I bought this for my wife in 2006. Uh, because she was, this was before we were married. She, she was spending over a year in Great Britain, uh, opening up an office for the company she was working for. So I built her a bug out bag and put probably the most illegal knife you could in the bag from, uh, for Great Britain. But just knowing that she had this and if she had to bug out of London and survive on the moors, I mean, I don't know what the hell that would be like, but at least she would have that knife. And that, 100%. yeah. You know, the last thing I would abandon if I had to like dump all my equipment, to, to, to try to escape as fast as I could. The last thing I'd probably leave is a knife. I'd, I'd keep the knife to the very, very end. That'd be the last thing I'd shed. Yeah, and it's usually the first thing people 
select in a in a survival you know any of these survival shows you can take three items they always take a knife if they know what's if they know what's up tom hanks movie the castaways the greatest um marketing tool for knives ever made ever yes i mean what would that guy have done if he'd had an srk he'd have smoothed yeah. it yeah if you had watched the castaway movie oh yeah yeah and i remember yeah. it, as he the plane is crashing trying to to to, to um improvise with an old pair of ice skates, like ice skates on the rack, you know. I mean, yeah. if you'd had an SRK or a machete or a Trailmaster boy knife, he could have smoothed it. Yep. Compared to the struggle we went through. So I, I got I got one more question for you here, uh, um, and then we're going to have a little bit of a conversation uh, for the patrons uh, and yeah, a little bit of exclusive content. Um, but I want to before I get to that question, uh, this is this is my um trail master it's slightly less bellied i've sharpened it a lot and uh used it a lot um this knife uh i got shortly after it came out or probably a couple years after it came out and i was wearing the first time i i carried this on my belt i got lost unexpectedly in in uh northern new york in the woods and we were trying to get out in the dark no light it was a it was a a mess. And no light, but I did have that knife. Put it on my belt, and as we were leaving, I swear we were being stalked out by something. And the whole time I had my hand on that blade, I felt like, all right, you know, my Filipino martial arts and this cold steel, like I can take on anything. And um, you know, thank God my naivete got out and that knife got me out of that those woods. But I always, always think of this knife. Uh this is always one of my favorites all time knives for not only survival but i feel like it's probably the best uh of the fighting the best fighter of probably almost all of the cold steels i have and i have a lot of them and they're all really really good but every time i get that trail master in hand there was a lot of thought that went into that trail master i designed that at the pierpont end on the back of a placemat oh. in i think it was 87 somewhere in there and I drew it and drew it and drew it and drew it. I was drawing it constantly. And I was really interested because Bill Bagwell had a battle blade column in Soldier Fortune magazine where he was really touting all the advantages of the boy knife. And the more I read, the more I started to agree with them. And the more I became interested in making bowies. But there wasn't really anybody making bowies outside of Western at that time. Mm. Or maybe there was a couple other small manufacturers, but it wasn't, there wasn't much of a choice. And especially not in a high performance bowie. So the, the biggest problem with a Bowie is the point is quite fragile on many of them. And I wanted a point that would pierce well, but would have a lot of resistance to bending and breaking. And that's where that point came on the Trailmaster. I know Joe Cordova, I have in my collection, uh, probably for sale now, uh, two uh, Trailmaster prototypes he made. And both of them had points that were too narrow at the front. And I kept working on it till I got one that I thought was optimum it had enough belly but with the false edge it was still acute enough to pierce well and i took some crap from that from people in the 80s i think it was br hughes that said that i don't know if he said it to me in person or if he said it in writing he thought it thought it would give you more of a push than pierce and i thought have you not ever stabbed anything with the Trailmaster? i mean i took it to australia in 1990 and I stabbed everything with it. I mean, that's, that's again where I know I always talk like people say, Oh, that guy's such an asshole. 
He's so arrogant. You know, I'm sorry I come across like that. It's because I know what I'm talking about. And I know what's true and I know what's false because I paid the money, went to places and did it. And some of it's very horrific. It's unpleasant. Uh, but we've lost all that knowledge and I'm trying to get it back. And I was trying to get all that knowledge back. So I know that what trail master will pierce really well because I dispatched a lot of animals with it. So yeah, you have a reason for saying it's the only thing that I would do different about that is make the guard wider. So if I remade that knife today, I would probably make the blade an inch longer. Um, you know, Faulkner even copied it for years. Right. Door series, they changed it around a little bit. Um, yeah, that's where another company got all their best ideas from Gold Steel. Um, and I can tell you all about the history of that too, because I know all the history. Uh, but I would make that guard a little bit longer. Now, why I didn't make the guard? The wider the guard is, the more likely it gets snagged by brush and stuff when you're moving through bush and um, thick foliage and stuff. So that always is a problem with a D guard or a wide guard. You know, it, it catches on stuff. But uh, James Keating pioneered, um, for me anyway, the, the use of the guard in Bowie knife fighting. And I watched his tapes. I know James a little bit. I, I consider him my friend. But he inspired me to really research the use of the guard. And Ron and I sparred with that guard for, for like two years. And I can't tell you how many thump fingers I got before mm. I really learned how to use that guard. But once you know how to use it, it's it's a miracle thing for a knife fight. Something I've always appreciated about your bowies, uh, almost all of them, is that the swedges come to a sort of a zero ground edge. It's it's oblique. It's not a it's not a cheese slicing edge, but uh, for a back cut or or any sort of strike using it, you're going to get a tear, gouge, gash. You know, it's going to be nasty on the back cut and that sort of uh, reverse Bowie knife fighting that, that, uh. Well, here's the problem with making the false edge too sharp. When I make it really sharp, right, then I thin the point out too much. So right. then I'm worried about the point bending or breaking. We did an experiment in the eighties. And if you break even, it starts at about three sixteenths of an inch. You break three sixteenths off the tip of your knife and you're going to, your stabbing power goes in half mm. or less. It makes a big difference to break the tip off your knife. That's why people should. Use a tanto, especially a cold steel tanto, if they have any hard use or any combat in mind, because your tip can run into all kinds of things on a, an opponent, on his um, body, on his body turnout, whatever. He has magazines, he has radios, he has stuff all over the spot, and your stab can impact something that can blunt or break your tip. So your tip's really important. So when I make too sharp of a false edge, then I imperil the strength and integrity of the tip. But what I try to do is to get it cut all the way through. We call it cut all the way through down to a zero edge. And with that, when you do your back cut, uh, especially on exposed fingers, you'll you'll chop through to the bone. Mm. And if you have a glove or something on, you'll break because it concentrates the force more in that narrow area. So you can break the metacarpals in the hand, especially the thumb or the fingers. So it's a great change up. Um, I didn't use it a lot until um, Keating's influence on me. And now it's a part of all my boy knife sparring is it's a, it's a great change up. It also allows you to avoid a cut at this hand by lifting your elbow and turning your wrist over. And so you can make that back cut as you vacate your space. You can engage with that part as it's an evasion and a hit at the same time. And it's a, it's a, it's a nice change up stroke. Constantly people aren't always aware of it. So yeah. 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 I'm the fan of the back cut. 
one thing I don't like about a Tanta, it doesn't have one, but it has a lot of other advantages. I mean, so just in wrapping up, I want to I want to ask you this: um, uh, a lot of people were bittersweet about the GSM sale, and um, uh, I also I, I wouldn't say I was clutching my pearls, but I was like, oh, I hope I hope they maintain, you know, I hope hope Lynn is still involved in all this, and um, uh, so. What what has your experience been with this? First of all, I say congratulations to you for working your ass off your whole life, creating this amazing company with a with a full um, catalog of of amazing stuff that if you weren't making, no one would make them. Um, and uh, so I want to congratulate you for that, but also for selling this company. Um, and and I don't want to say unburdening yourself, but moving on. I think that's uh, worthy of congratulations. Well, my friend, Dr. Wells, retired when he was 77 years old. He worked way too long. He retired with broken health. He spent the next 10 years in and out of convalescent hospitals and stuff like that. And he was a brilliant, awesome guy. And I thought, I don't want to make that mistake. I don't want to work myself to the bone and uh, not enjoy any part of life and just have a lifetime of work. Um Sometimes I regret selling because I still have so many ideas and so many things that I'd like to see done. But, you know, when you sell a company, you can't tell them what to do. <laughs> uh, if I bought a company, I wouldn't want anyone telling me what to do. Right. If they buy my company, I really can't tell them what to do. So I try to um, use what little influence I have, but that's the best I can do. And I never liked it when um, Richard G., my friend, bought Gunsight. And the late uh, Mr. Cooper interfered in that business, uh, and I thought it was so unfair. If you sell your business, right, you, the new guys have a right to run that business as they see fit. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Buzz uh, bought uh, Gunsight, and uh, it's just going forward great guns, and I'm really happy for their success. But, yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I got to say, uh, with my limited, you know, we're we're all limited by by the time we've had, but GSM uh, seems so far to be uh, holding holding the standard, and uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm uh, trying really hard to encourage them that. I know all the manufacturers that they use around the world, and they're all my dear friends. And I've asked them privately to continue that to deliver the quality that we insisted on for year and for years. And I think for the most part, they really are. I, I just hope that uh, GSM will be really diligent in that because um, it's only by constantly testing your deliveries will you ever keep that up. And we used to test every single delivery. And uh, you can ask a lot of our distributors, they'd tell you that things would be go out of stock because I sent them back. Mm -hmm. um, especially when we first started the trial block, we battled to perfect that thing. And um, there was a number of shipments that were returned that just weren't good enough. They didn't pass our tests. And then that's what created a company worth selling, worth buying, and worth worth seeing into the future. Uh, Lynn Thompson, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the Knife Junkie podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I look forward to uh, asking you a few more questions uh, in this exclusive, but also uh, to avail ourselves here at the Knife Junkie podcast to you. I uh, feel like we got a lot more to talk about. And uh, we're, Anytime. we're always here to talk with you, have you here. I just hope people take me in the right vein today because I've just tried to be myself and honest and, and sometimes that offends a few people. It's a little too direct for them. 
Well, I, I think those people probably aren't here, A. And B, the offended class has no place here. And, and, and C, I, I feel like there, there may have been a time where people were like, oh, Lynn Thompson, he's doing all these kinds. But now I just think people have mass respect for you. I think they always have respected you, but I think, I think everyone just kind of likes you. You're Lynn Thompson. Look at what you did for us. So well, like I said, I, I love my customers and I, I, I never, I always looked at business as a war which offended a lot of my competitors, but they're my competitors. I'm not there to win their love. I'm there to win your love and your appreciation and your business. And so um, you're either winning or losing in business. And if you're not going up, you're going down, you know, standing still is an option. So yeah, I always tried hard for my customers. I really appreciate my customers. I want to say it again. Thank you for, for all your love and all your support. And I really appreciate you to this day. Well, I'm sure we'll get a lot of commentary on this uh, on this podcast and video of people uh, sending We're their things. I was going to talk about that in our exclusive, but let's let's talk about this right here, uh, so people far and wide can know, and then uh, we can dig into that on the other side. Uh, tell me about the Axe Gang. Well, the Axe Gang is still just being formulated now, but I own the trademark Axe Gang, and I own it for uh, knives and swords and all that kind of stuff, and for um, clothing and the axe gang is really a concept of martial people that are interested in promoting and learning more about all the different martial arts and want to be good guys until it's time not to be a good guy. And that's, I love that saying, saying from Roadhouse, we're going to be nice. 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 We're going to be nice until it's time not to be nice. And that's what we want to personify in the axe gang is that. We promote all the things that, that you and I love, all the edged weapons, all the firearms, all this stuff, but we're also not ever going to be thugs. So we're, we're going to be nice, 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 but we're going to be the pillar of our communities and never the pillager. That's one of my favorite sayings is that a warrior should be the pillar of his community. He should be the staunch supporter. He should be the one that uplifts it and reinforces it and people go to for help and stuff. He should never be the one that abuses his power, his training, or his wealth, or any of those things. He should always be the support, the good guy, if you would. I couldn't agree more. Uh, there's nothing more despicable than a person who has that ability and uses it for wrong. So uh, I look forward to actually digging in more to the Axe Gang as time goes on. I want to find out more about it. I feel like uh, I and many of our listeners kind of fit into that category. I've been promoting throwing axes and knives since the 80s you know this new phenomenon that's come out which i'm happy for of throwing yeah. axes the only thing i will shake my head a lot about it beer and alcohol yeah. and throwing axes uh, what are we vikings what is this yes but yeah i've been doing this for years and i'm i'm the axe gang is going to really promote that because um i throw i throw my axe gang hatchets at just about every day so i haven't shown a lot of my throwing but i probably will in the future well, we'll all watch and we'll all learn and have fun. Lynn Thompson, thank you so much for coming on the Knife Junkie it's Podcast. It's privilege to be here. It really has. I really enjoyed it. I think that you're doing a great job, and uh, I really enjoyed it today. Thank you so much for the kind words. I appreciate it. You bet. Take care, sir. You bet. Visit the Knife Junkie at theknifejunkie.com to catch all of our podcast episodes, videos, photos, and more. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, the great and powerful Lynn Thompson. Uh, so glad to finally have him on this show. Um, you know, I guess I would say if you were ever considering becoming a patron, 
now would be the time so you can check out uh the other uh couple couple extra minutes of conversation we're gonna have um but you know if you've watched the show for any length of time you know how much it meant to me to be able to talk to lynn and uh and to reflect on all of his work which i have arrayed all around me all right stay tuned for another great interview next sunday right here on the knife junkie podcast also wednesday for the supplemental where you get to see the new knives that are coming in here and uh don't forget thursday night knives live 10 p.m eastern standard time right here on youtube facebook and twitch for jim working his magic behind the switcher i'm bob demarco saying until next time don't take dull for an answer thanks for listening to the knife junkie podcast if you enjoyed the show please rate and review at reviewthepodcast.com for show notes for today's episode, additional resources, and to listen to past episodes, visit our website, theknifejunkie.com. You can also watch our latest videos on YouTube at theknifejunkie.com slash YouTube. Check out some great knife photos on theknifejunkie.com slash Instagram, and join our Facebook group at theknifejunkie.com slash Facebook. And if you have a question or comment, email them to bob at theknifejunkie.com or call our 24-7 listener line at 724-466-4487, and you may hear Hear your comment or question answered on an upcoming episode of the Knife Junkie Podcast.